Hey everyone, thank you for joining me again on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell and today we're sitting down with Monica Garrison. Monica is the founder, executive director, and chief storyteller at Black Girls Do Bike. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Narco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're a new rider or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. There's still spaces available for summer, and the fall rides are just opening up. Check them out on dirtseries.com or find them on the partner link on our website. Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. So let's jump right into it. You're in Pittsburgh. Is that where you were born and raised? Yeah, I'm, I'm a native Pittsburgher. So I've been here my whole life, seen the city change in lots of ways, raised my, raising my children here. So yeah. Awesome. So how did you get your start with bikes? Uh, I think like most people, I started riding when I was pretty young. Well, I, I assume like most people. When school stopped and the summertime fun started, the first thing I would do is hop on my bike and ride. And then I, I guess I kind of put the bike down for a while in my young adult life. And I picked it up again when I decided to commute to work here in Pittsburgh over the course of like a year, year and a half when I worked downtown. And then again, cycling kind of left my my world and then it re-entered my life in 2013 which is when this latest journey began so this is when black girls do bike started and it started on facebook right my goal was to find other women who were riding and, and who had discovered their joy of riding and just give them a place to talk and realize that they weren't alone so fa facebook was the first place that i thought let's if you're going to start a community that was where you were going to do it in 2013. And so we started the page. Yeah. And it has absolutely exploited you or what you're over a hundred chapters now, including your first international. Yeah. A hundred, 104, I think was our last count international chapter in London. We have some chapters in places you wouldn't think like Anchorage, Alaska and Antigua. So we're expanding. That's the good news. And women are discovering us every day. So every day, you know, new people find us and that's exciting. <laughs> That's incredible. One thing that I, when I first found you that I really liked is how you're more than a bike club, right? Like you're demystifying cycling, providing clinics. Tell me some of your, tell me some of the thoughts as to why you wanted to be more than just a space to hang out. I, I think we just saw, well, I saw a need to do all those things and we had the means to do it because we quickly started to gain women who wanted to volunteer their time to to do the mission of Black Girls Do Bikes. So yeah, getting women on bikes is the goal, but what we found is there are a lot of barriers to women getting on bikes. And, and then once they're riding, if they don't know a lot, there's a lot of blanks that need to be filled in. Things like clinics, how to change a flat, how to fit a helmet that, that works and lots of other things. So the other things just kind of organically grew out of the needs that we found that women had when they were coming to cycling and adjusting to cycling life. I've been watching a lot of the group rides. I did a couple of the virtual rides myself up here in Canada during the pandemic. I did the Let's Roll was the last one that I did. So tell me, you know, some of your favorite on the bike stories. Tell me some exciting trail stories. Yeah, <laughs> I think, well, do you want my personal stories or, or those that I've heard along the way? I mean, Either, both, whatever stories touch your heart. I think the best part 
are, are stories that involve women who find each other through Black Girls Do Bike and then you know, they form friendships, lifelong friendships, and or women who didn't think that cycling was for them. And once they get on a bike and they meet a group of women who are pushing them in that direction and holding them accountable, then they continue to do it. So, well, one of my favorite stories is actually the woman who formed our very first chapter in Florida, Central Florida. Her name was Victoria. And when I met her uh, simply online, not in person, she was recovering from heart failure that she had developed in her pregnancy. And she had very little stamina. I couldn't walk from her front door to her mailbox. You know, she was in really bad shape. And she used cycling inch by inch, you know, block by block to regain her, her stamina and her sense of wellness. And she was, she was grateful to have found cycling. And then that passion turned into her being grateful to have found Black Girls Do Bike and wanting to share that with other women. So she, you know, that was probably eight years ago now that she started that chapter. And then her st story continues because she's become friends with, you know, other sorority sisters that she met through Black Girls Do Bike. And so they've ended up traveling the world and, and doing lots of things. So her story keeps evolving. But that one, you know, that gets me because she, you know, she's central to the growth of Black Girls Do Bike, the beginnings, and, and her story keeps evolving with us. And then I always get a little special place in my heart for the women who didn't learn how to bike as, as children. Because like I said, I assume most people do, but that's not the case. And there are lots of women in our network who discovered cycling through Black Girls Do Bike. And then our leadership or our members have helped them from, you know, point one, which is how to how to get on a bike and balance and turn those pedals. And, and then those women become women who are doing century rides and trail rides. And, and, and there are a lot of stories like that, too many to, to mention them individually. But I think those are really cool because they gained the skill through us and then they're able to share that with other women through the through the network. That's incredible. Yeah. So Black Girls Do Bike is a name, but it's it's not an exclusionary space. You are open to women from everywhere. Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably hard to convey that sometimes because sometimes you see black anything and you think, oh, this is like some sort of exclusionary space, as you said, but, but the opposite is true. We want to get all women on bikes. I happen to be a woman of color. And so I'm, uh, you know, especially tuned into those unique things that make, you know, this life a little harder for women of color. And so I want to give those women, especially a tool that they can use to kind of navigate and, and help them through life. And so that's, you know, that's why it's called Black Girls Do Bike because I realize there's a need there. But at the same time, if you if you think there should be more women of color on bikes, then you should be you should be supporting Black Girls Do Bike. Yeah, <laughs> you do do co-ed rides as well, but you've been very intentional about the way you set up some of your co-ed rides, the way that partners, husbands, boyfriends can support and come along. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think so. When we invite the the men the boyfriends the male acquaintances along it could be it could be a co-ed rad like you said where they're they're able to join us on select rides but also oftentimes they're sag support so it's like hey you know carry these supplies for us or meet us at these points along the way and give us support if anyone needs it or you know carry the food on on your back and and have the snacks and power bars ready for us so we allow them to support us because we're not no, we're not man haters by any means. And, and if they want to be involved, we, we welcome that. Awesome. 
Awesome. Yeah. Going back to the first story you told with Foria, uh, your first chapter in Florida, mm-hmm. communities of color disproportionately face negative health outcomes. And like, just like the story you said, cycling is is such a huge benefit. Is that one of your, you know, sort of impetuses to being in different communities? Yeah, I think it came, I, I came along with what we were trying to accomplish, right? So the goal was to get women on bikes. But then once we we started to accomplish that, we realized that, like you said, riding bikes regularly can actually change your your health in lots of positive ways. And obviously, our community is affected by a lot of diseases that are preventable for the most part if if we regular regularly exercise and, and choose our foods properly. So, you know, when you have Tour de Cure, which is a ride for diabetes prevention, and you have American Heart Association, you have those kind of rides and you have the AIDS life cycle in California. Like there are all these rides that support all these things that hit our communities really hard. And so it's great to have a community that can we can put behind those causes to support. But at the same time, you know, we see those women make changes, small changes, and then they start to ride regularly. And then they see changes in their bodies and changes in how, you know, they feel about life and their mood lifts. And so they're benefiting you know, every time they get on the ride, they, on the bike, they benefit. So our goal is to get more women behind the the causes that affect our community in particular. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. In a previous interview, you talked a little bit about safety and how safety for, for women of color specifically is, is a little bit different when you are out on a bike in a public space. So talk to me about your thoughts and feelings on that, but also talk to me about, you know, what we can be doing to change that. Yeah, I I think the thing that hit me the most when I started riding was that I felt unsafe in a lot of conditions that my cycling counterparts didn't, you know, take a second thought at, for instance, riding on the road. So female cyclists face certain challenges with riding on the road and, you know, catcalling and, and people not appreciating or respecting them being there. And I think that's, pretty universal. I think any female cyclist you talk to has a story where she felt unwanted or unsafe on the road. So multiply that for a woman of color and you have uncertainty around other drivers and cars. You have uncertainty around policing, how you're policed as a woman of color cyclist. And you can imagine the things that can come from that negatively. So yeah, I think, I think special, we talked about barriers. I think that's one of the barriers. Some, some women just will avoid that activity altogether because they don't feel safe. So there, there's value in having a community of women to ride with, right? So it's not just you anymore. You can you can reach out and solicit other women to join you. And there's power in that for sure. So I think that's one of the things women women gain. And then they also gain confidence. So when you're when you're on your bike and you are confident that you can get from point A to point B. And you know that you can do that without stopping because you might not feel comfortable stopping in the neighborhood you're in or on the road you're on. So even just building stamina and, and being able to get from point A to point B under your own power can can give you confidence on the road. So those are just a couple of things that I think are important. I think it was when you were being interviewed by Trek Bikes, you said that the power that women can feel in the saddle, she carries into all aspects of womanhood. Talk to For me sure. about that a bit. I think it's just the, like when you get on the bike, as I mentioned, and you know that you can go from here to there under your own power, that, that, that 
flips a switch in your in your mind because because a lot of times we there are things we don't think we can accomplish right so it's a metaphor right you get you can climb that hill that you you didn't think you could or you can you know reach this destination that you didn't think you could or you get on the trail and you cross state lines and you see things that you've never seen before so all those things affect our psyche and i do believe uh in no one has yet proved me wrong <laughs> i do believe that those things directly translate into our everyday lives. So, you know, it, we're, we're more likely to try something new, you know, once we've tried a sport that we hadn't tried before, and we're more likely to travel and all those things come along with the confidence that you can, can gain, not just from cycling, but cycling is a good tool to get you there. So your experience of womanhood includes being a mother and part of how you spend time with your family is cycling and on the bikes. What are things that we need, you know, as communities, as city planners to consider to make cycling spaces more safe for families? That's a great question. I, I think that, so when I take my kids out on the road um, and they're 11 and 14 now, right? So, so they're old enough to join me in bike lanes. But even the things that bike lanes are safer, but I, I, almost every bike lane that we ride, I know there are ways to make them even more safer. And I, and I have mentioned previously that I don't think we've accomplished this goal of bikeable streets until I could feel safe allowing my kids to ride maybe from home to school or from home to a park nearby, from home to a store and not have to worry that they're going to be interfacing with traffic in a dangerous way. So that that would be the goal, of course. But I, I think I, I watched an interview recently and they were speaking of how a lot of city planning in the past and in the present has been done by men. And so they make it easy to go to, to bars and sporting events and things that are, you know, not strictly masculine, but but it's built into the system. And so they said, imagine a world where women were city planners. What, what type of things would we include? And obviously that comes from having women at the table, at the discussion as to what cities are going to look like and, and form into. But I, I imagine, I'm sure you can as well, that cities would look a lot different if mothers and women were, were setting the standards. So I guess, I guess the answer is have women at the table, have us at making those plans. And ultimately, you would see an immediate change in, in how safe streets look. I agree. What about infrastructure gaps in economically marginalized communities? I've heard you speak on this before. You, you taught me something really fascinating. I want you to tell my, to talk to my listeners about this. Oh, what, what was that <laughs> about? Uh, about the different surface materials. Yeah, that was, that was really something I hadn't thought about. That also came from an interview I listened to. But yeah, it never crossed my mind, right? I grew up in a lower class neighborhood and our streets were horrible. And I just assumed that's how everyone's streets looked. And, and what we realize now is that planning also involves the type of materials that are used. And so more affluent neighborhoods get better streets. They get better materials that last longer and less likely to get potholes. And, but, but when you have smooth, comfortable streets, it encourages you to do outdoor sports, to ride your bike. It's not as much of a burden. So there's probably a reason why people in less affluent neighborhoods don't ride bikes, for instance, or they don't load up their biking with groceries and make those short trips by bike, which it makes sense to do, but it's less convenient. It could be less convenient for them to do it. So aside from, you know, not having a, a history of people of color on bikes 
in your immediate, you know, memory, you also probably, if you live in a, a poor neighborhood are discouraged from writing for lots of other reasons. So that yeah, that was, that was one thing that stood out to me in the last year or so. Fascinating. And also just, you know, the damage to your bike. Bikes are expensive and there are ways to reduce costs around them and you can do your own maintenance on them, but some surface conditions can be really damaging. For sure. And so when you, when you do, you know, have that flat tire that comes from hitting that pothole, are you able to bounce back and, and make the repair? Yeah, the, it's, it's all the little things that add up to a, an environment that's less than friendly to bike riding in, in whole neighborhoods. So on the Ryan Van Duzer show, you were talking about something that is near and dear to me and how I actually first found Black Girls Do Bike with the Black Girl Magic Cycling Guide about natural hair. Mm. I, my, the women in my family don't cycle. And we come from a community with very few people of color. So I always assumed that I had to blow out my hair as it's blown out today or choose not to wear a helmet. Mm. I could never figure out my natural hair and helmet. So <laughs> for curly haired girls, what advice <laughs> do you have? <laughs> yeah, man, you have done your homework. I love it. So I don't know if I mentioned in that interview, but when I started cycling in 2013, I had nine years of a full head of locks that I had grown and I, and I, I grew, I grew to love. And in my obsession with cycling, I found, I found that it was easier and cooler temperature wise to cut my hair. And that's when I, I cut my hair to the short style and it was great. You know, cycling became on and off with the helmet. However, I don't recommend that because I, you know, I realize locks hold lots of value for, for different people in different ways. So I'm not suggesting that, that everyone do that. But what I did realize is that my hair was a barrier to me riding. And so therefore in starting this community, that, that became the conversation quickly, especially with new riders. And they were a lot of times opting not to ride with a helmet, like you said, and that's, that's a horrible choice. So, so yeah, so the, the main suggestions I give are sizing. So you may very well need two helmets, maybe a large and an extra large, because our hair can vary in size, right? From day to day, sometimes from hour to hour, sometimes. And so, yeah, so get a couple of helmets if you can, so that you can wear the helmet based on what your hair looks like for the day. And then also there's a lot of value in being able to tie your hair down as close to your scalp as you possibly can, which may make it a little hotter than normal, but it allows you, the, the thing with helmets is fit is everything. And if it's positioned incorrectly, you can, you can still sustain a lot of damage in, in an accident. So it's very important that the helmet fit a certain way. You know, it's, it's hitting your forehead at the right place. You got the right, you can fit two fingers under your chin and the strap. It's, it's hitting right below your ears. And so as long as you can get it in the correct position, do whatever you need to do, you know, to your hair to get it so you can do that. So we don't want you riding with the helmet, like sitting on top of your head and not even reaching your forehead, because that can be, that can be really detrimental in the event of a, a crash. When I first started cycle commuting to work, I was in a professional position where I was expected to present a specific way. And, and that was another barrier, you know, even though it was only a 15 minute ride, I yeah. would often choose not to wear a helmet because I'm trying to protect that hairstyle to present in that specific way. And I think that's a barrier to all women in the space. For sure. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you have, we have women who commute to work and it might be hopefully a situation where they have facilities to, you know, 
take a shower, right? If you get, if you perspire or if you need to restyle, ideally that would be the situation, but you, we really do have to get creative, especially in that situation where we want to make great healthy choices like commuting to work. But then, like you said, we're also expected to show up in a certain way. And I would, I would venture to say the expectations are even higher for women of color, right? Because you, you have to present in a certain way to almost show that you should be in that space and to be valued. So yeah, there, there's certainly lots of things that can affect how you handle that. In your experience in the space to date, are there any brands that are sort of addressing this, that are even thinking about this? That's a great question. I think there are some. I don't, but, but I honestly would say, I don't think anyone has done a real honest, good job of attacking the problem, partially because I think we would be a great resource and I, and I haven't gotten a legitimate reach out from a company that has the resources to make a solution to actually tap into our community and figure that out. We've got a lot on the academic level, like folks who are doing thesis and, and, and they are like, well, how, there's a problem here. How can we solve it? But no one who has, has actually done it. There is a group in Brazil of women of color cyclists who have created a helmet that, yeah, it's, it's interesting. They, they have a problem, they have a need. So they're like, let's make this helmet. Essentially it's, it's a helmet and it has cut out so that you, you can have your hair extend beyond the helmet. And so I'm looking into that because I think that's, you know, invention is necessity comes out of, you know, inventions come out of necessity a lot of times. Right. So I respect that they have actually tried to tackle this issue. We'd have to check the safety standards here in the U S and make sure that, you know, so I don't want to promote anything until I know that it's going to protect our ladies. But at the same time, I totally respect the effort and, and what they've done. And they have a lot of great marketing around these helmets. So respect. <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I would have to check against the safety standards for Canada as well, which our standards are virtually identical, but yeah, amazing that someone is putting efforts towards solving this problem. Yeah. You've said that groups haven't reached out to you in terms of helmets, but you have been working with groups in the industry with regards to size inclusive kit. You've been doing some work with REI, for example. Yeah, REI has reached out to us several times regarding, they've made lots of amazing efforts in the last, let's say, five to six years to make their stores more inclusive, their brand, their clothing, which is a big part of that. And so, yeah, we've been involved in efforts to, I'll say correct, for lack of a better word, correct their sizing so that when women walk in of all sizes, they can find what they're looking for on REI shelves. And, and they have made some changes. They've included, they've added brands that have better sizing. And again, I say better because I'm a plus size woman. So I always appreciate when I walk into a store and, and the top sizing isn't extra large because, you know. There's a lot of us who are beyond extra, extra large or the, the extra large isn't a true extra large, right? It's really a large with maybe an inch added to it. So, so yeah, we, we worked with them and, and I'll say, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I welcome, you know, any brand that wants to tap into us as a resource, because we have a lot of women of every size who are, who are consumers and they're riding bikes and they need clothing that works for them. And we've even made adjustments to our own because we sell cycling gear, mostly, mostly kits and t-shirts, but we've made adjustments even to our own sizing based on feedback from our community. So it's very important. Yeah. And you do have a, like a full size range, which I appreciate. 
I, I'm a woman who can buy off the rack, but I'm at the top end of the scale. Mm -hmm. And I find that what my size would be in a regular pair of pants that I would wear out on the street and what the size of a cycling kit that I would need to wear in order to be comfortable. It feels like technical gear is sized down It's and it's shaped down. It's shaped mm -hmm. linearly. And that is not how our bodies are shaped. No. And a lot of times it's based on men's sizing and they just, they take men's wear and just make slight adjustments. I, I, a lot of times I don't think a lot of thought goes into it, which is, which is a shame. That is changing because there are a lot of women entrepreneurs who are entering this space. And I will say there are some big brands. I want to, I want to say Adidas is probably one of my favorites because they've made lots of strides in offering, you know, plus size clothing. So, you know, the, the, things are changing. So that's the good news. But yeah, I, I would love for every woman to be able to walk into a bike shop and find on the rack, you know, cycling gear for bigger size bodies. Yeah. Do you think the industry realizes the message it's sending by not offering size inclusive kit? <laughs> I've asked myself that a lot, right? It, because, because as a consumer, your thought is, well, is this an oversight intentionally an oversight or an unintentional oversight? That's the big question. And that's the question I ask myself when I decide to spend my dollars. Is this, is this company ignoring that I exist, which is painful, but should not be rewarded either, right? I think it's a combination of, of the two. As, as a brand who sells clothing, I realize that there are certain sizes that sell more frequently. So you're more likely to stock them. So I think it has to be a conscious decision to say, oh, we're going to also keep these items, you know, that might sell less frequently on the shelf so that, you know, when people walk in or go to our online store, they feel, they feel welcome. So I, I think it's a conscious decision to do it differently. Yeah. 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 If you build it, we will buy it. Exactly. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> and the economic engine that are, that are women, I mean, I don't have the notes in front of me, the numbers, but mm -hmm. I think it's women do upwards of 70% of the household spending. And if you are leaving half of those women behind, how much money are you leaving on the table? Yeah. It seems like a no brainer to me, but you know, maybe there are things at work that, that I'm not aware of. And also I I've said also in the past, like, you know, this is a consumer driven market that we're in this great capitalist society that we live in. And if you, if you are putting this ideal body image in front of people and you know that half the population almost is not fitting into that, it's probably higher, but let's say half the population doesn't fit into that image. And the way to get there is, you know, partially through exercise. So it just makes sense to me that it'd be really welcoming to have plus size exercise workout gear so that these women who may be striving for this ideal image that you're holding in front of them, you know, can feel comfortable along the journey. It's a journey. And so exercise clothing should be for everyone because we're all on that journey at some point in our lives. Absolutely. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm a skier. I'm always going to have thighs like a tree trunk. I know, you know, <laughs> I need pants for these thighs. <laughs> right. Right. It's true though. I think in every industry, like I, I'm, but if you follow any bodybuilders on Instagram, like one of their greatest complaints is that they can't buy pants off the rack because they have these, you know, muscle, muscular lower halves. And so there are companies who have come out with just pants for bodybuilders because it gives them the extra room, but it just, it's, it seems like a logical step, right. To, to make them, I don't know. So <laughs> <laughs>
So back to your back to your hundred plus chapters from yes. anchored like from the north as far north as you can go to nearly as far south as you can go. Are there any interesting things that you have learned about cycling in all these different climates, you know, sort of feedback you've gotten from chapters? I am from the northernmost major city in North America. So, I mean, we have unique challenges for cycling year round, which I do or I endeavor to, you know, anything that you've learned, anything that surprised you? I think, well, so one thing was in Antigua, which they've been a chapter, an active chapter for a few years now. But when they started, it was brought to my attention that they don't have a lot of sidewalks there, which is something I never would have, you know, I've never been there, so I wouldn't have known that. But that was a challenge they faced, right, to to riding. And also the terrain was a little rough. So they they had to find ways to to organize and ride and the trail system wasn't really well developed. So they they had a lot of unique challenges to their to their terrain. And then our, our folks in in Anchorage, they have, you know, weather, obviously <laughs> that could be a challenge, but their, their winters last really, really long. So their riding season is maybe three or four months solid out of the year. And then you get a lot of rain and, and eventually snow. And so, so they had lots of issues with how do you, you know, how do we keep people engaged and involved and active through, a, you know, an eight month, month winter, for instance. And so, you know, I thought that was, quite interesting. And, and then we have some parts of the country just who don't have a really, and I don't know if this answers your question, but they just have a low population of people of color, like Des Moines, Iowa, we have, we're, we're expanding, but there are, there are states that we haven't even reached yet. And I assume it's because based on the, the demographics that I know that it's, it's because their populations of people of color are so, so low. So that in, a, in and of itself can be a challenge, just, just finding enough people to rally around the the idea of, of getting Black women on bikes can be a challenge based on where you are in the country and the world for that matter. I noticed on the website that you're actively seeking to recruit Shiro's in a couple of states. So tell me about Shiro's. Oh, sh- <laughs> Shiro's are the, they're the best. They're, they're the backbone of Black Girls Do Bikes. So they are women of every walk of life who have stepped forward to a lot of times they're experienced riders, but sometimes they're just new riders who are extremely excited and passionate about cycling. And they kind of lead the way. So they organize the rides in all, all of our cities. They they connect with their local bike shops and businesses and make those connections. So they have places to ride and places to start rides and they can gain support. They motivate women almost on a daily basis. I think around the clock, we have some sort of uh, event happening, but they're, they're really, I, I say they're boots on the ground because, because they are, and they keep me informed as to the, what the pulse of the organization is. They let me know where, what their challenges are and they, they, they lead the way in almost every way. So I, I'm always looking for ways to support them and perks to, to throw their way and to reward them for their efforts. Because, you know, it's an unpaid position. You get, you get that warm and fuzzy feeling when you help others. And that only goes so far. So they, they meet a lot of challenges along the way, but they're, they're in line with the mission, which is the most important criteria. They have to, they have to be extremely passionate about helping women get on bikes. And, and that's the first step. Once you get that out of the way, everything else kind of, kind of comes, but, but we're 180 plus lady leaders. So as you can imagine, it's a large group of women who have a lot of needs and a lot of opinions and concerns. And so part of what I do is I support them in their efforts. And I try to find ways to make their life easier because I do appreciate all they sacrifice to to extend the mission of Black Girls Dubai. You've done quite a lot of media 
promoting <laughs> women cycling, promoting Black Girls Do Bike. Is there a question that you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you? Is there something that you've wanted to talk about, but you've never had an opportunity? Mm. No, I want to say no. I think I, I think I find a way to get all the things I want to talk about, weave it into a conversation as, as best I can. Of course, there are, you know, some deep, dark things in my soul that I, I want to talk about, in, mostly in terms of like, as you said, I've done a lot of media, but I am by nature an introvert and a quiet old soul. And and so it was really a conscious decision about five years ago that if Black Girls Do Bike was going to expand and reach more people that I had to, I had to open my mouth and talk about it. And so despite my nature, it's almost, it was, and it worked. It was, it was, it was important that I speak and I think people are listening and I think our sheroes appreciate that I kind of stepped out of my shell a bit and started talking to the world about Black Girls Do Bike. So I, I don't regret it for a minute. But, but at times it is, it is challenging. <laughs> well, no one would ever know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Lots of practice. <laughs> it what, does get easier. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Do it. Yeah. What's next for you for Black Girls Do Bike? You've got a huge event coming up in your hometown. Yeah, that's, that's the big one. So, you know, the pandemic stopped us from having in-person national events which we had had consistently for about four or five years. And so this is our first year back at it. And I said, well, what better place to do it than my hometown? So I can kind of highlight all the things that, you know, have encouraged me and supported me along the way in the cycling community here, which is amazing. And so, yeah, so we're going to invite women from all over the, the country to come solo or with their girlfriends or with their families and we're going to have a weekend just of, of cycling centric events. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And then next year, 2024, wait, what year is it? <laughs> <laughs> next year will be our 10 year anniversary, 2023. So that is, that's the big one, right? And that's when you, you know, you do all that soul searching and you're like, you know, how, and, and do I need to pivot and what, you know, what can we do better? And so we're going to have all the I'm going to do a lot of self-reflecting over the next few months and, and kind of define what Black Girls Do Bike is going to look like for the next 10 years. And then hopefully we'll do it somewhere cool. Like maybe, maybe we'll go to Jamaica or, you know, somewhere exciting. Yeah. that I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pour a lot into this 10 year celebration. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about that. We will yeah. be looking for that. And I'm sure will a lot of my listeners where do our listeners find you? Uh, BlackGirlsDoBike.org is our website. And from there, you can find the list of our chapters. You, know, you can look at all the events that we have coming up present and also past events to see what we've been up to. We've, we've been working, uh, pouring into a YouTube channel over the last year or two. So there are lots of videos there that just kind of give you highlights of, of what Black Girls Do Bike is all about. So yeah, check us out. And we're, we're on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and, you know, those fun things. And listeners links, all of those links are going to be available in the show notes to this episode. Monica, this was an absolute privilege. I'm so glad we finally got to link up. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. I, I've enjoyed it. And that is it for this episode. Thank you everyone for joining us. Links on where to find Monica and Black Girls Do Bike are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. 
I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.